Revelation chapter 1. I'm going to give just a very brief, only three slides from last week to catch you up to speed if you weren't here, and then we will uh, pray and uh, dig out, Lord willing, chapter 1 this evening. But just to make sure that everybody's on the same page. When we talk about the book of Revelation, we are talking about a book that was inspired by the Holy Spirit through John the Apostle. He is mentioned here uh, by name in verse 1. He wrote it, it is believed, around the year 95 AD, which would make him just about the same age. And so he is the last of the surviving original 12 apostles whom Jesus selected He has been banished to the island of Patmos by the emperor Domitian, and we find out later in chapter 1 exactly why he's there, but this is basically a prison camp. Patmos is the the Alcatraz of the Roman Empire, and it is uh, a place where they would send prisoners. It was a prison camp. Uh, Patmos is about 13 square miles in the uh, Aegean Sea, one of the Greek islands, And this is where he is uh, sentenced. Uh, And again, we'll mention why he's there when we get to the end of chapter 1. And it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is not the revelation of John. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. The Greek word for revelation is apocalypsis, meaning an unveiling or a revealing. It's where we get our English word apocalypse. So what we are reading here is all about Jesus. And there are, as I mentioned last week, three basic ways that you can interpret the book of Revelation. I'm not going to define all these three again. You can go back and listen to last week's teaching, but those three methods of interpreting the book of Revelation are number one, allegorical, number two, historical, and number three, literal, or the literal interpretation means that you see these things as prophetic, as futuristic, and that's where we land. I'll be teaching this book from a literal standpoint. Obviously, there's a lot of symbolism in here, but again, as I mentioned last week, a lot of the symbolism is because John is trying to translate things that he sees centuries down the road in first century terminology, and so there's a lot of times where he he talks about it looked like, it sounded like, because he's trying to find words in the first century to describe things that are way down the road. And, and, uh, and thus, there's a lot of symbolism, but that doesn't detract from the fact that this is still a literal presentation of things that are going to be happening in the future. And again, you know, the main purpose behind the book of Revelation is because it is helping us to understand events leading up to and including the second coming of Jesus Christ. And as Jesus ascended back into heaven in Acts chapter 1, as the disciples stood gazing into heaven, two angels appeared, and it is recorded in Acts 1, uh, verse 11, where they say to the disciples, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. So Jesus is coming again. We never want to put a date on it. We want to be careful not to, uh, you know, be um, too definitive in terms of dates. Uh, but we, we are told in Scripture we should know the signs of the times. And, you know, we're living in, in, these, in these days. I, I don't know how soon Christ may return, but, you know, when we see things like the coronavirus going around right now and the great panic around the world over one virus, Luke 21.11 says there will be an increase of earthquakes and pestilence and 
tossing of the waves of the sea, meaning tsunami. So these are birth pains. These are things that are pointing to the end times. But what we see around us in our world is not necessarily the events of revelation yet. Uh, but God wants us to be prepared. God wants us to know some of the signs of the times, to be ready, to be looking, to be eagerly expecting the second coming of Jesus. So that, this is what Revelation is about. We're going to look at chapter 1 this evening and, uh, and dig out these verses together, verse by verse. We're going to go slowly. We're going to go methodically and carefully. I hope you bring notebooks with you or on your devices you can take some notes because this is um, something we cannot rush through. There's a lot of information. It's kind of like falling headfirst into a vat of chocolate. Where do you start and end? I mean, it's just so much that you just have to take your time and enjoy it. So that's what we're going to do. Let's pray first. Father, thank you for your grace and your love and thank you for truth. And as we look into the book of Revelation, we we do need your help, Lord. We need your wisdom. We need the guidance of your Holy Spirit. You obviously have given this book in your word so that we can learn it and understand it. And so we do pray for eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart that would receive what you have to say to us tonight. We love you and we praise you together in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. Now, let's pause there because you might read that and say things that must shortly take place. And and here John writes this about 1900 years ago. So you're thinking, what does he mean by that? Things have not shortly taken place. But in fact, uh, the Greek for shortly are two words, entakei, and entakei means quickly or suddenly. And so it, it, it means not in the sense that things will necessarily happen soon, but in the sense that when they do happen, they will happen quickly, rapidly. These things will unfold. Uh, so this is not a contradiction here. Well, you know, it's been 1900 years and things still have not taken place shortly. But the Greek just simply ma- means that when it happens, not necessarily that it's going to happen soon, but when it happens, these things are going to happen rapidly. These things are going to happen quickly. The rest of verse 1 says, And he sent and signified it by his angels to his servant John. Now, this is interesting because this is not the first time, and, and it, this is the first time, but it won't be the last time, that the book of Revelation mentions the assistance of angels in, in delivering some of these symbolic things and some of these uh, messages. In fact, uh, angels, the word angel appears 76 times in the book of Revelation. 76 times. So, Uh, God uses angels at different times throughout the book of Revelation. And in this first example, it is just simply a reminder that many of the visions that John has uh, come with and by the assistance of angels. If you want to hold your place there in chapter 1, I'll give you just two examples. Look over to chapter 5, verse 2. In chapter 5, verse 2, John says, Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? Uh, Jump further over to chapter 7 and verse 2. 
In chapter 7, verse 2, Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And so there are many times, you can go back to chapter 1, many times in the book of Revelation where God uses angels to assist in these different visions uh, that John has and these different uh, messages that John receives here. And so uh, he says, and, and he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, verse 2, back in chapter 1, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. Now, again, these are going to come in clusters of visions. And we talked last week about how uh, John is writing as an Easterner, not a Westerner. So some of the things that he sees, he writes not in chronological order, but kind of in a polychronic order. Again, as I said last week, it's like he's standing in a circular room. And on all the walls are LED screens of different visions and, and his senses are being bombarded because he talks about things that he saw and he mentions things that he saw 36 times in the book of Revelation. But he also talks about things that he heard, things that he heard 27 times in the book of Revelation. And, and so his senses are being bombarded and he writes in this polychronic kind of a circular way of all these sights and visions. And so a lot of what you have in Revelation is chronological, but some of it is not. And we'll talk about it as we make our way through it. But he sees these visions. He sees things that God shows him. And verse 3 says, blessed is he who reads, that would be me for tonight, and those who hear... That would be you for tonight. The words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it for the time is near. Now, notice there, verse 3, blessed. Blessed is he who reads and, and those who, who hear. There are seven beatitudes in the book of Revelation. This is the first of seven. And I've given you the scripture references up on the screen, but rather than write out each verse, I thought I'd just read it to you. But for you note takers, you can write down the references. But let me just read to you. These are different beatitudes in the book of Revelation. In other words, blessings. Uh, the word blessed literally in the Greek means, oh, how happy. And so here in Revelation 1, 3, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it for the time is near. Revelation 14, 13 says, Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. Revelation 16, 15. Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. Revelation 19, 9. Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. Revelation 20, verse 6. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Revelation 22, 7. Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. And then Revelation twenty two fourteen, blessed are those who do his commandments that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. So as I said last week, the book of Revelation has bookends of blessing. It begins in chapter one with a blessing. It ends in chapter 22 with a blessing. We will be blessed if we read it, if we hear it, and if we do what it says. So God says that intrinsically found, inherently found in his 
a book here, particularly the book of Revelation, is this blessing for us to read it and to hear it and to do what it says. And, and it is prophetic. You know, again, some, some interpret this book just simply allegorically. This is all symbolic, that it doesn't really have any prophetic content. But you can't get past the word prophecy right there in verse 3, when it says, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy. This is futuristic. These are things that John sees into the future. And to keep those things which are written in it for the time is near. So the time is near. And we need to be ready. Verse 6, rather verse 4. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia. Now, note that. Seven churches which are in Asia. Now, he's talking about Asia Minor. And what we'll find when we get into chapters 2 and 3 are specific letters that Jesus dictates to seven literal churches in Asia Minor. And in particular... The part of Asia Minor that we're speaking of is what would be on a map today, Turkey. That all seven of these churches are literal churches that at this time uh, have congregations, however big or small, in this part of Turkey, of Asia Minor. So when we get into chapters 2 and 3, I'll throw a map up on the screen. We'll see exactly where these churches were located. And they're named uh, further down here in chapter 1. But So John is told by the Lord to write down these letters to these seven churches. Again, these are literal churches. But when we get to chapters 2 and 3, you're going to see that these are literal churches that represent a, a time period in church history. And that God has a specific message to each phase of church history leading up to his second coming. And when we get into chapters 2 and 3, I'll talk about, I'll identify what church belongs to this particular time period. And, and so we'll see that when we get to it. But, he, but he's, he's writing to these seven churches. And he says here, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now, pause there for a moment, underline or highlight in your Bible the seven spirits. There is great debate as to what John is referring to here. The seven spirits. What are, who are the seven spirits? Well, there are three schools of thought. One is that it simply is a reference to the completeness or the fullness of of the Holy Spirit being there in the presence of the Lord. Um, Seven in numerology is a number in the Bible for completion, for um, fullness. The number seven is used more than 50 times in the book of Revelation. So uh, it speaks of things that are perfect. Uh, How many of you happen to be born on the seventh of the month? Welcome to my family. It's a perfect family. I too am the seventh. Anyway, I digress. But anyway, 50 times in the book of Revelation, seven is mentioned. So it could refer to the completeness or the fullness, the perfection of the Holy Spirit. It could also refer to the seven virtues of the Holy Spirit. In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, I'll just read it. There are seven characteristics or qualities of the Holy Spirit that are mentioned in Isaiah 11 two. it says this, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And so Isaiah was writing, excuse me, 
he was writing prophetically about the Messiah, speaking about Jesus in particular, that on Jesus would come the sevenfold aspect of the Holy Spirit, that characteristics of the fullness of the Holy Spirit, that he would come in the spirit of the Lord. He would come with the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel and might of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. So that's another possibility. The third possibility is that it's not really a reference to the Holy Spirit per se, but it is a reference to seven angels around the throne of God. Now, again, there are going to be different uh, interpretations to these things, okay? I I don't pretend to to be dogmatic for a moment on what these things necessarily mean. I do land on number three because the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. And if you jog on over to chapter 8, verse 2... In chapter 8, verse 2, uh, John seems to spell it out here to let us know that the seven spirits are these seven angels. Because in chapter 8, verse 2, he says, And I saw the seven angels, it's the direct article, the, I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. So here in chapter 8, verse 2, it tells us that there are seven angels who stand before God, who are around the throne of God. So back here in chapter 1, when he talks about the seven spirits who are before his throne, it could simply be referring to spiritual beings I know in New King James it's capitalized, the word spirits, in other translations it's not. And so if you, if you compare uh, chapter 1, uh, verse 4, with chapter 8, verse 2, it could indicate this, these, are, these are angels that are around the presence of, of the Lord. And verse 5, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, I'm back here in, in chapter 1, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. So this verse here is stressing the sovereignty of God. He's ruler over the kings of the earth. He's firstborn from the dead. Again, Jesus was the first one to rise from the dead with a glorified body. In the course of his ministry, and not just in Jesus' ministry, but the Apostle Paul we see in Scripture, and, and Peter also raised some people from the dead, but all those people died again. When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, he died again. But Jesus was the first to rise from the dead with a glorified body, never to perish again. And his example going before us is what we have to look forward to, that we also in Christ will get a glorified body that will rise from the dead, that will never perish, that that is imperishable, the Bible says. And so that's why Jesus is called the one who is the firstborn from the dead, in that sense, that he's gotten a glorified body never to perish again. And it says, continuing on, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Just speaking of that cleansing work of the cross, the shed blood of Jesus, washing over our sins. And he loved us and and washed us, cleansed us. Verse 6, and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And amen just is the affirmative. Yes, it's a declarative statement to what was just said. When we close prayer and we say amen, we're just saying yes in unity and affirming what was said. And so he says here about how God has loved us. He's washed us from our sins by the blood of Jesus. And he's made us, it says there in verse 6, made us kings. Some of your translations say made us into a kingdom and priests to his God and Father. So this is simply a statement that when God redeems us through the blood of his son Jesus... 
that, it, that we're getting the royal treatment, if you will, and, and that we share in all the privileges and uh, responsibilities uh, being heirs of, of, of God and co-heirs with Christ, and that we've been made priests. Now, this, this doesn't mean that we go around you know, absolving people of their sins. Uh, this is just simply a term that refers to the priestly act of people was to make God known to man and make man known to God. And that happens in different ways. When we witness Christ and when we make Christ known in our world, we are making God known to man. And when we pray for people and when we just, you know, intercede on behalf of people, we're lifting up man to God. So we're for, we are in that position of a priest, not in this, you know, clerical sense, but in this sense of just, you know, God using us to present him and to represent him to man and uh, for us to intercede in representing man to God. And so we have this wonderful, you know, royal kind of welcoming into the family of God. Peter would say something similar in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, when he said, You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And then he tells us here in verse 7, Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him, even so. Amen. So notice here in verse 7, Behold, look. Watch, see, he is coming. Jesus is coming, and he's coming with the clouds. Now, I believe that he means that in two ways. He means it both literally, he's coming with the clouds or in the clouds, and he's coming with the clouds figuratively. Let me, let me explain. But first, let me walk on back again to our famous timeline that you will be seeing for the next five years, all right? <laughs> But again, when we, when we think about where we are in terms of the timeline of history and prophecy, Jesus has risen from the dead. Oh, you know what? I, I don't know who it was. I think it was Alan who gave me this incredible laser pointer. Check this out. Look at this. So was it Alan? Where's Alan? Who gave me this? Thank you, sir. Appreciate that. All right. That was weak. Thank him again. Better than, that, that's wonderful. All right. So, here, so here, here we are. Jesus rises from the dead. He ascends back into heaven. I feel like such a school teacher here today. <laughs> we are presently in the church age. That's Revelation 1 through 3. What, what, oh, I need the clicker because I actually, I need both now. I need, because I actually put a nice little circle that, there it is, see? What? Because I didn't know I was going to get this tonight. But what, but what John is talking about here is when Jesus comes back to earth. Now remember, there's a partial a part. There's, uh, the second coming is in two phases. Jesus comes in the clouds to receive us. That's the rapture. But then he comes back to earth, and that's when he uh, comes back to the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem. And, and this is the part that he's talking about here. He's talking about the second coming when Christ actually comes back to the earth, not the part in the clouds when he comes to rapture the church. So, so what does it mean, though, that it speaks of him coming with the clouds? Notice the preposition is with. It's not in. 
And uh, this is really something that can be seen in light of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Sometimes when you read words in the book of Revelation, they don't always mean what we think they mean. Clouds don't always mean wispy things in the air. And when it talks, for example, about the sea, it doesn't always mean a body of water. And so we have to, again, interpret Scripture with Scripture. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, it, ta- it follows the great hall of faith chapter from Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11, when it lists all these men and women who were so faithful to God. And in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. The idea of a cloud is the idea here that Jesus is returning with the saints. The saints are the cloud that he's surrounded by as he comes back to earth to establish his kingdom and to end the battle of Armageddon uh, in Revelation chapter 19. So in Revelation 1, John is giving us a glimpse of what is going to happen in Revelation chapter 19, that Jesus returns to the earth and when he returns, he brings the saints with him. Uh, This is what the Bible says, Jesus even himself in Matthew chapter 26, verse 64 when he's in front of the Sanhedrin to the high priest, Jesus said this, Matthew 26, 64. It is as you said, nevertheless, I say to you hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the, of, of the, right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So he, it can mean literal because again, Acts chapter 1, Jesus ascends up into heaven and he's coming again in the same manner. So he's coming in a literal sense in the clouds, that's Matthew 26, 64, but he's also coming with the clouds, that's Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. And, and so he is surrounded by the great cloud of witnesses. He comes again. Uh, in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, it says in verse 12, And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. So when believers die and they go to heaven, at whatever point Jesus returns, he will bring the saints with him back to earth and we will rule and reign with him for a thousand years. So we come back with him. And that's probably here what John is referring to when he talks about, behold, he is coming with the clouds. Now, there are more than 300 Old Testament references in the book of Revelation from 24 different Old Testament books. But most of them are not footnoted. Uh, most of the time, John doesn't say this was to fulfill the prophet like some of the gospel writers do. What we actually are reading here in this, in this section is from the book of Daniel, chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Let me read to you from Daniel seven thirteen to 14. Daniel says, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. And so, in actuality, John here is writing in verse 7, 
in reference to what Daniel says in chapter 7, verses 13 and 14 about the second coming of Christ. Daniel saw the same vision. I saw the Son of Man coming with... It's interesting, again, the preposition is with, not in. I saw him with the clouds coming. So he's surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, the saints, the Christians coming back with him to earth. And it says there, and every, this is back here in Revelation 1, 7, and every eye will see him. Every eye will see him. Jesus said in Matthew 24, verses 26 and 27, therefore... If they say to you, look, he is in the desert, do not go out. Or look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. Now, this is what Jesus meant there. That was Matthew 24, verses 26 and 27. He said his second coming is not going to be in obscurity. You're never going to have to worry that you've missed the second coming of Christ. If somebody comes up to you and says, did you hear about the second coming? You're like, no, I didn't hear about it. Oh, you missed it, dude. Man, you missed it. Man, it was incredible. You know, it happened over in Illinois. And, uh, okay, first of all, it's not going to happen in Illinois. So, you know, that isn't right. It's the Mount of Olives. It's east of Jerusalem. It's in Jerusalem. And the second thing is, Jesus points it out. He says, if somebody says to you, hey, we saw him in the desert, don't believe it. Don't even go out there to see him. Because he says, the, the coming of the Son of Man is going to be like lightning flashing across the sky, and everybody's going to see him. And this is why John writes here, every eye will see him. Now, I personally believe that the advancement of technology is going to accomplish this. Because everybody's got a smartphone, and, and there's satellite dishes, and there's cable, and there's, there is now the ability to get information around the world in a split second so that everybody can see it. So people will either see it with the naked eye or they will see it through technology, but it will not go unnoticed. And nobody will say, he came and you missed him. Everybody will see him. Every eye will see him. Even they who pierced him. Okay, now this is a special uh, notation here for the Jewish people. But again, as I said on Sunday, we all in effect have pierced him. We're not laying blame at the feet of the Jews. We all, because of our sin, pierced Jesus. That's why he went to the cross to die for all of us. But in particular, he's speaking here of the Jews because he he goes on to say, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him, even so, amen. We talked about this on Sunday. Now he's quoting from Zechariah chapter 12, verses 10 and 11. In Zechariah chapter 12, verses 10 and 11, it talks about how when Jesus comes again and he bears the mark of his crucifixion, and it says they will see the one that they have pierced. It says it right here in Revelation. But in Zechariah 12, it also says they will look upon the one that they have pierced. They will ask, where did you receive these marks? He will say, I received them in the house of my friends. He will be making a reference to the fact that his own people, he came among his own and his own received him not, that the Jewish people who denied that he was Messiah who pierced him, will, on the day of his second coming, when he comes back to the Mount of Olives, behold him, see the marks of his crucifixion, and they will weep, Zechariah 12 tells us, and Revelation 1. They will weep bitterly. Zechariah says they will weep bitterly as one weeps for an only child. And the reference to the place where the Assyrians would separate children from their parents, and there was a day when there was such great weeping, Zechariah says it'll be like that on the day when Christ returns. Because to the, for those who denied him 
and either directly or in effect indirectly pierced him and nailed him to the cross, they will be so broken. When, you know, I mean, I mean, think about this. If you, for all your life, have denied Jesus isn't the Lord, and I don't believe in the crucifixion, and the whole cross thing is made up, and it's just a crutch, you know, Christians go around talking about Jesus dying for their sins, and then one day you see him, and you behold him, and he's bearing the marks of his crucifixion, and he stands there before you, I mean, you're going to be undone. You will be undone. And this is what he's referring to here, the weeping, because they will look upon him. And it says all the tribes, all the tribes. So again, this is not exclusive to the Jewish people. All the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him, even so, amen. In Revelation 7, verse 9, it talks about how John saw people before the throne from every tribe, every language, every nation, every people. And so heaven is going to be a very diverse place. And if, if you have a little ounce of prejudice towards any other culture, you better get over that now. Because in heaven, there will be people from every language, every culture, every tribe, every people. Jesus came for all, died for all, and loves all. Amen. And Jesus then speaks here in verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. By the way, the word Almighty obviously speaks of his strength. The word Almighty is mentioned only ten times in the New Testament. Ten times in the New Testament, nine out of those ten times is in the book of Revelation. He is known as the Almighty One. He's powerful. And he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Now, the New Testament was written originally in Greek. So that's the Greek first letter of the alphabet and the Greek last letter of the alphabet. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. But in Hebrew, there is this expression about Aleph and Tov. That's the first and the last letters of the Hebrew alphabet. It is the same expression we have when we say, um, you know, I've told you everything from A to Z. What are we saying? We're saying, I've given you the sum total of it all. And so Jesus is saying, I am the Aleph and the Tov. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the A to Z. I am the sum total of everything. And I am the first and the last, the beginning and the end, who was and is and is to come, the Almighty. Verse 9, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom, and patience of Jesus Christ. Now, by the way, this is tribulation small t. All right? There's plenty of tribulation small t in our lives. There is great tribulation, capital T, that comes in Revelation chapter 6 that will come upon the earth. If you think things are bad now, you ain't seen nothing yet. What is going to happen on the earth is unimaginable. But God outlines it for us in advance through chapter 6 to 18. So when John says here, I'm your brother and companion in tribulation, he doesn't mean I'm in tribulation, great tribulation, capital T, but he's writing in first century. It was one of the bloodiest centuries in terms of persecution of Christians. And, and so he, he's experiencing tribulation himself. He's on the island of Patmos. He's in his 90s and he's, and he's hauling rocks. Okay, the island of Patmos was a big slab of marble. And when prisoners were sent there, they, they would chip out marble. That was their job. That's what he was doing here. So he's experiencing some tribulation. Uh, and and um, 
He says, I'm your brother and companion in the tribulation and the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God. Here's the reason that he's been uh, sent off to Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. He says, I'm here on this island, this, this, you know, terrible place because I've been true to the word of God and I've been true to the testimony of Jesus Christ as a believer. This is why I'm here. He's been banished there by the emperor Domitian. And he says in verse 10, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. Now, again, he's using language here. It sounded, it was, it, it was so strong. The blast of the voice was like a trumpet, but he, but he doesn't mean literally a trumpet. He's talking about how the voice of God sounded so strong, like a trumpet blast. But he says here, I was in the spirit. Now in your Bibles, and this isn't taking away anything. I'm just talking about original language. The article the is not in the original Greek. So if you want to do what I did in my Bible, I just circled the word the and I put a little mark through it. Now don't worry, you're not taking any way, anything away from the Bible. I'm just saying in the original language, it just simply reads, I was in spirit. I was in spirit. The only reason I point that out is because John is saying more than I have the Holy Spirit in me and the Holy Spirit was guiding me to write these things. What he's telling us is that he was actually captive by the spirit. And he said, I was in spirit and he has, if you will. And I don't, I don't want this to sound mystical or mysterious, but I, but in, you know, in modern language, we would say something like he had an out of body experience. Okay. He is being lifted in spirit. He, this is more than just, I'm inspired to write these things by the spirit. He is saying, I was caught up in spirit. God actually took him in some place, visually, spiritually, to be able to experience these things, to see these things. And, and that's what he writes about. And he mentions it was on the Lord's day. Now, that doesn't mean the Sabbath. The Sabbath has been and always still is Saturday. He's talking Sunday. Ever since Jesus rose from the dead on a Sunday, that's been the Lord's day. That's been traditionally when the Christian church has been worshiping him on Sunday. This is the Lord's day. So he's specific here. He says it was a Sunday. And I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, and here's Jesus again saying what we just read. I am the alpha and the omega, the first and the last and what you see right in a book. He's he's instructing John, I want you to write these things down. Now, he's going to tell John specifically, and I kind of chuckle at this, 11 more times through the book of Revelation, write this down, write this down, write this down. Because I get this picture that John is just like so wide-eyed by all these visions that he's seeing in this circular room that every once in a while God says, John, hey, wake up, write this down, (laughs) write it down. So a total of a dozen times, this is the first one. Write this down in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia. And here are the seven churches. The church in Ephesus, the church in Smyrna, the church in Pergamos, the church in Thyatira, the church in Sardis, the church in Philadelphia, not Pennsylvania, and the church in Laodicea. And so he instructs him, write to these seven churches And because our time has escaped us, we're going to have to pause it there for next week. All right? And we'll see what he said. Oh, I'm so happy you leave hungry. That's the way you you should leave. Let's pray.
Thank you, Lord, for this time together in your word. And as we continue to dig out the book of Revelation, it's just a constant reminder to us of just how grateful we are that you have not forgotten us or forsaken us, that you are coming again. And so, Lord, may our hearts always be eagerly anticipating your blessed return. We love you and we thank you that you first loved us. Go with us now as we go to our respective homes. We praise you in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen.